You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's scripture is coming from Acts 26, verses 1 through 23. Agrippa said to Paul, it is permitted for you to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I am going to make a defense before you about everything I am accused by the Jews, especially since you are an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. Because of this hope, I am being accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. This I actually did in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison, since I had received authority from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I cast my votes against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. Being greatly enraged at them, I even pursued them to foreign cities. Under these circumstances, I was traveling to Damascus with authority and a commission from the chief priests. At midnight day, while on the road... O king, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. But I said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things you have seen and of things in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified in faith by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first, and to those in Jerusalem, and in all the regions of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple complex, and were trying to kill me. Since I have obtained help that comes from God, to this day I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that the first to... And as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. This is God's word. Good, good, good morning, King's Cross. I'm Chad, one of the pastors here, and so grateful to be with you this morning as we are walking and continuing to walk through Acts. And we're going to be going through chapters 25 and 26 this morning. Primarily because there is one overarching story that's occurring as Paul has continued to be in bondage and he's carried out again in front of a new governor 
in front of a different king to tell his story that we just heard read for us this morning. So as we uh, begin to look into this passage and to, to see what God might reveal for us, I'm going to ask that you pray with me, join with me in prayer that the Spirit would be with us. Father, thank you for the opportunities we get to come before you and open up your word. Thank you in your kindness that you've written down for us in this way an account that we might be able to see the way that you've worked in one of your disciples' lives. God, I'm grateful for the challenge that's in this text, and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would fill us, guide us, and lead us so that my words may never be a hindrance, but rather you would ultimately be glorified and that we would make much of Jesus. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, what does pursuit of success look like in our modern world? Successful careers, wealth, status. Do we believe those things will bring us happiness and fulfillment? Are those places we ultimately rest our hope? In Acts chapter 25 and chapter 26, there's a really a bit of theater unfolding. See, in one scene, you see glittering courts filled with nobility, feasts, and grand speeches. Laughter, applause fills the room as these two powerful rulers, Festus and Agrippa, make decisions that sway the fate of peoples and nations. It's a scene that captures everything society praises, influence, wealth, success, and on the other side of the stage is a different scene. Here a man sits in a dimly lit cell bound in chains. He's not feasting or laughing, but there's a calm determination in his eyes. He speaks passionately to anyone who will listen, not about power or riches, but about love, grace, Jesus, his resurrection, and freedom in the kingdom of God. This man, Paul, in prison yet unswayed, in chains yet unbroken because his hope doesn't rest in his circumstance. Now, if you look at these two roles, which one is it that you're trying to pursue in your life? Are we, are we attempting? I don't have a life plan that involves me being in chains. Most of you probably didn't write that in your vision book. But as we go into Acts 25 and 26, we're invited to step into this theatrical contrast between two very different worlds, the allure of worldly success and the seemingly bleak reality of Paul's faithful perseverance. And appearances can be deceiving. See, the real power, the authentic freedom isn't found where we might expect in this world. Over and over again, we're reminded of the contrast between darkness and light between bondage and freedom, between the power of Satan and the kingdom of God. Those are the things Paul even mentions as we just read that he was sent to free people from, to bring them from darkness to light, to open their eyes. So we have to ask the question, brothers and sisters, what is it that binds us? What do we trust in for our freedom and our hope? Are we chasing after the things that Festus and Agrippa are bound to? Are we seeking the eternal freedom that's found only in Christ? So let's open up chapter 25, starting in verse 1, as we walk through the contrasting worlds. And we're going to first look at what bondage to the world looks like in the examples of Festus and Agrippa. Verse 1, three days after Festus arrived in the province, 
he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul, that Festus summons him to Jerusalem. They were in fact preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. So let's, as they're setting the stage again, let's remind ourselves of where we've come to. Paul has been put in chains. He was under the um, oversight of Felix, the prior governor, and Felix was a rather roughneck guy. We knew that he did a lot to crush any kind of dissent, and the Jews tried to come in with an attorney to convince Felix that Paul was a threat to the peace of the area. Let's get rid of him too. In fact, let's get rid of all the ones who say they follow after the way. But Felix couldn't find anything that Paul was actually guilty of under Roman law. Paul was a Roman citizen, so it wouldn't really be expedient just to randomly execute Roman citizens if he couldn't find a reason. But he was afraid of the Jews, so he kept Paul in chains. We talked about the fact they don't have the kind of laws we have in, in, in the U.S. We enjoy that freedom of a, of a speedy trial. Instead, they could just kind of hold him under accusation for any amount of time before they felt like dealing with it. So, doing a favor for the Jews, Paul is still kept for what it says was two years. And now we see this new governor come in, Festus, and he is actually, from what we know about him coming from the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, and from Acts, in this here, we see that by all accounts, he was a little more balanced of a ruler and he was much more decisive, okay? Paul's kept for two years. He comes in, the first thing he says, we need to take care of what's going on with Paul, what's happening here, all right? But he's also one who is politically expedient. He knows the power rulers in the area, like the Jewish rulers that he's overseeing, need to be on his side, they need to be doing some favors together. So he wants to go talk to him. He spends some time. It says, in fact, he spent more than eight or 10 days in Jerusalem just hanging out, rubbing elbows, talking to the influencers in the area because they need to be on the same page. These are power players. He did <clears throat> compromise at times to keep the peace and to coalesce power. And he's tempted here by that phrase we see, the, the Jews saying, asking for a favor against Paul. And that's something that comes up regularly in this passage. They wanna do it, give me a favor. You, you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours, all right? There's no reason he necessarily should be executed. Felix couldn't find it. But Festus, he's considering doing a favor for the Jews. So what happens next? He puts his foot down, they come to Caesarea. In verse six, we had spent not more than eight or 10 days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. And when he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. Then Paul made his defense. So two years later, witnesses probably hard to find. They're not in Jerusalem. They got all these accusations. They're still trying to put him away. And all Paul has to say in response is, neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. He's like, I don't, I don't have to prove nothing. They have nothing against me. The Jewish leaders are trying to make the accusations and nothing sticks. But Festus, look at nine, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? But he's not ignorant. He probably well knows that Paul's gonna be in a dangerous situation in Jerusalem. And the earlier portion of this passage indicates their intention was to kill him on the way anyway. In fact, it's not surprising that they would. 
We have records of high priests and power in this time colluding together for all sorts of violence. Just hiring out mobs to do things in the dirty work. And so note the reason he wants to do it, to do a Jews, the Jews a favor. To gain favor, Festus is willing to ignore justice. He sees a man who's innocent before him and says, hey, but the Jews really want to do something with him. Hey, Paul, would you be willing to go be tried again by them? He's on trial again. He's been going through this on multiple occasions. And Paul has no reason to trust his life in Festus's judgment. No reason. This new governor shows up. He wants to send him to Jerusalem for no apparent reason. So what is Paul's response? I'm standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. He's calling him out. You know that. If then I did anything wrong in deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. I don't trust you. That's what he said. I don't trust you. And what does Festus have to do? He confers with his counsel. He replies, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. Now think about this. This is the er, a version of the appellate court, right? You get the ruling or you get kind of a judge. He actually hasn't gotten a ruling yet. Festus hasn't made a ruling. But in this particular case, he says, I'm appealing directly to the top. I want to go there. I don't trust you. I think you're trying to, to, to curry favor. And I'm going to instead go above and over your head. You know, Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But in this particular case, Festus is more concerned with the peace in the land and trying to appeal to the Jews. And you and I may not feel like we truly feel fear other people. You're not walking around scared of other people necessarily. But how often are we held captive by the thoughts and opinions of others? Huh? That we're willing to compromise? because what maybe someone else might think. I mean, there are real serious things at play here. Festus is trying to keep the peace, and so he finds a way that he might compromise for that. And you and I might think we're trying to keep the peace in our life. Listen, I'm guilty of just loving peace. I don't want to stir the pot. I went to a concert the other night, and these couple of guys down the road from me started to look like they were about to fight over a signed hat. I'm like, man, have the hat. <laughs> I, don't want to have to, I don't want to break this up, <laughs> okay? We're not getting violent over this. It's not worth it. But often in my life, sometimes I might just choose to be silent when I shouldn't be silent. Even worse, to do something that I shouldn't do for the sake of keeping peace. To not honor the Lord with my life, my words, my actions, but instead to compromise on what is just and right and true because I'm afraid more of what others think of me than of what my Lord who knows me thinks of me. Paul stands before Festus and knows what his Lord thinks of him, that he can trust him. So what happens next after he appeals to Caesar? Several days later, King Agrippa shows up and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. Since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king. 
There's a man who was left by, as a prisoner by Felix. <laughs> I love how he's like tossing it off. You know, the guy before me, he's left this guy in prison. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked that he be condemned. I answered them that it's not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges. He's a keeper of justice. So when they had assembled here, I did not delay. I'm not like Felix. The next day I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. The accuser stood up and brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting and said they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, a dead man, Paul claimed to be alive. And since I was at a loss and a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Well, tomorrow you'll hear him. Now, who is Agrippa? Now, if you're at all familiar and you've seen with our times in Acts, the Herods have showed up on a regular basis. They're kind of a common theme. They're like the, they're the antagonist to the Jesus Chronicles, right? Herod shows up all the time. It's a Herodian dynasty, if you will. And the Herodian dynasty goes through a period of time where uh, you see Herod shows up and puts, uh, um, shows up when Jesus is born. You see a Herod show up when Jesus is, is taken before the governor. And you see a Herod show up early in Acts who puts James to death. And you see now another Herod, Agrippa, as he is being called here, Agrippa II is his, his full name, who now shows up when Paul is being examined. Now, like Herod Antipas, who examined Jesus back in the day, Agrippa here is curious about Paul. This is a new guy. You have to understand the, the parallels between this account with Paul and Jesus are intentional. We see it. The fact that a Roman governor who found no fault, Pilate, and he didn't know what to do with this guy, Jesus, even though the Jews wanted to put him to death. He, Pilate chooses to wash his hands. Festus wants to do the Jews a favor and just pass him along. In the story of Jesus, we see that Pilate doesn't know what to do with him, so he sends him on to Herod Antipas, who is eager to examine Jesus. But Herod Antipas is like not impressed. He was hoping to see a miracle. He heard some stuff. And when Jesus doesn't turn out to be as exciting as he hoped, he has him mocked, ridiculed, and sent back to Pilate. And now Agrippa II is eager. He hears the story of this guy, Paul, and he says, I'd like to hear this, man. It's not another trial. It's just a hearing. And a hearing that Festus is actually eager to have. He has to send this guy to Caesar, and he has no idea what the right he's charged with. Do you know how bad that makes him look? Can you imagine? Why does this guy feel like he needs to appeal to me, Festus? What are you doing down there? Like you have no charges for him? Like why am I wasting my time? Can you imagine? Caesar or all of all, over all of Rome and some random governor's like, hey, can you take care of this problem? What's he charged with? I don't know. Just talk to him, I'm busy. Don't look good. So Agrippa is a welcome guest. He shows up because Agrippa is actually Jewish. In fact, the Herods, by, by um, a gift from Rome, if you will, the governors has been put in place of selecting the high priest. They're over the temple. So they should know what's going on in the religious world in Jerusalem. So what happens when Agrippa the next day? He comes in and he is a guy who's in bondage to power and prestige. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp 
And they entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men in the city. And when Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in before all of this regalia. Great pomp. See, like Caesar, the Herods are a dynasty of rulers. And as I mentioned, they're Jewish, but they're very friendly with Rome. They enjoy Roman appointed power and all the positions that come along with it. And they've loved their power for a long time. In fact, King Herod the Great, who's the one who heard about Jesus, he was familiar with the prophets. And the wise men came to him and said, by the way, that king of the Jews, is, we're looking for him. He was born today. And you know, his response was, I want to put this kid to death. He asked the wise men to come back to him to report on where Jesus was, and they didn't come back. So what did he do? The story we have is that he wipes out all the toddlers because he wants to make sure he catches him. He loved his power so much he was willing to kill his son, Herod Antipas, is the one who actually beheaded John the Baptist, you know, for making him look bad, put him in prison. He's also the one who examined Jesus. Herod Antipas was actually accused of conspiracy against the new Roman emperor Caligula. This is what happens to him. And Caligula sends him off to exile in Spain. And the one who accuses him of conspiracy was his nephew, Herod Agrippa I. He wanted that slot. And after Herod Agrippa's, the first father, by the way, was murdered by his grandfather, family problems, Herod the Great, to protect his power, killed his son and sent Agrippa I to the Roman courts where he made friends and enemies. He had all kinds of time where he got to meet those who were up and coming emperors and power players. And then Herod Agrippa I shows up earlier in Acts where he has James killed and arrest Peter. And now we find ourselves, oh, I'm sorry, I missed this part of the story for Agrippa I. In Acts 12, 23, it says that he comes out himself with great pomp when the people acclaim him as a God. And an angel of the Lord strikes him down because he did not give God the glory. And now his son, Agrippa II, walks on the scene with great pomp. They're descendants of Israel, God's chosen people. They're Jewish. They're familiar with the temple. Though the Herods are so close to the mysteries of God, they have chosen the power and glory of this world. They married themselves to the power and the privilege that the Roman society offered them. And then in verse 24, Festus says to King Agrippa, all men present with us. You see this man, this whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he had not done anything deserving of death. But we, when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him, and I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after his examination is over, I may have something to write, for it seems unreasonable for me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Agrippa then said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. King Agrippa, with all his pomp and power and circumstance, now sets in judgment over Paul. It's not a trial. He's still going to go to Caesar. But instead to examine what he has to say. And Paul stands in chains. All the strength in his region in Rome is standing before him. 
They've come out with the intimidation of all the military standing and walking around them. And King Agrippa, while he looks at a man in front of him in chains, doesn't recognize that he himself is the one in bondage. That his grandfather kills his father over power. His grandfather murders tons of toddlers to try to secure his throne. That his dad turns on his uncle because he wants to get that slot. Now Agrippa II is enjoying that same kind of power passed on to him and he loves it. He walks in with Bernice, who is actually his sister. Uh, there's no direct record of this, but there was accusations, there was relationships there that shouldn't have been. And so they would have marriages out of necessity. But Bernice is with him now and that's his sister who's grown up in the same conditions. And as they stand before Paul, what is Paul's answer going to be to King Agrippa? He tells him, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I have, I am to make my defense today against all my accusations of the Jews, especially since you were very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and the controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul says, I know you know about this, Agrippa. <laughs> I know you know what I'm talking about here, so listen up because I'm gonna tell you about freedom in Christ. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope in which God promised to our ancestors, the promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I'm being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem and I locked up many of the saints in prison. Since I had received authority for that from the chief priests, when they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme since I was terribly enraged at them. I pursued them even to foreign cities. Paul points to his life before Christ and he tells on the same ground with Agrippa, you know what I'm talking about. Jerusalem and Israel has always had a hope in the resurrection. There's a sect of people that don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but you're not unfamiliar with this. I'm just talking about that hope that I found in this one person. And he says, you know, if you could talk to anybody about my background, about my background, I was willing to kill them. I get it. They want to kill me. I was doing the same thing. I was literally taking the chief priest's orders and doing the same thing. But now I want to tell you about what happened to me to open my eyes. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priest. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I love that Jesus associates himself with us. I mean, Jesus is not the one that he's killing but yet he is. He's persecuting Christ's people. 
I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What is Jesus, what is Paul sent to do? He's sent to be a witness to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Do you know why Paul can stand before these two powerful men who, as far as the world is concerned, hold his life in their hands? Because like he has encouraged all of us, he no longer sees anyone after the flesh that he knows he doesn't wrestle against flesh and blood. That these men before them hold no power over him, lest what God allowed them to do. That the evidence of God's blessing in one's life is not what's on the outside, but it's rather on where we rest our hope. That Paul is resting all of his hope on what he knows to be true in Christ that he has power over life and death, that he has demonstrated that power in his resurrection, and that he has commissioned Paul to go to the Gentiles so that he might open their eyes to see. And he tells them that I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. That's also a little under, underlying thing he's trying to tell Agrippa and Festus. My God said that he'll rescue me, rescue me from you if he needs to. Paul had an imminent view of God, not a transcendent and far away view alone, that he was somewhere off, but he was present with him. We saw that in Acts, that God is not very far from any one of us. That he was pronouncing the coming of the kingdom of God on earth and that the kingdoms and rulers of this world had no way that they could stop it. They could kill his body, but they had no effect over his soul. And so what does he continue on to tell Agrippa? When I learned this, he said, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. I saw something from God. I'm not gonna keep it quiet. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first. The place I was going to kill the Christians, I went to preach. And to those in Jerusalem and all the reason of Judea and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. And to this very day, I have help from God. And I stand to testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is pointing Agrippa toward the hope in Jesus. Agrippa, the Gentiles who you have become so close with, salvation is now coming to them. All those people that you have trusted in the power to come from, the power of God and his salvation is coming to them. And he's telling them, that's why the Jews seize me. 
You get it, right? These Gentiles ain't so bad. I'm telling you, God loves them too. And these Jews are trying to kill me because I have proclaimed to the Gentiles exactly what the prophet said would happen. What did they say? That the Messiah would suffer, that it, as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to the people and to the Gentiles. This is an invitation to Agrippa. You know these things are true. You know the prophet said this was coming. I'm just proclaiming to the Gentiles the salvation that's available in Christ. I ain't done nothing wrong. And this is an invitation for all of us. This is an invitation for you and I. If we have trusted in Christ, this is an invitation to cast off the bondage of this world and remember moment by moment, day after day, that those things are only slavery, that our hope doesn't rest there, but rather it's an invitation to freedom in Christ. And look how Agrippa and Festus respond. Look at it, it's telling where they are. Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much studying is driving you mad. Look, he's not saying he's stupid. He's saying you're a pretty smart guy, but it's, going, it's, it's, it's making you crazy. I, get, I mean, listen, we could probably relate to this. There's some dudes that have been brilliant throughout history, some men and women who probably, if you sit in a room with them talk, you're like, think you're crazy. I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, I might think I'd like a moment with Einstein, but if I sat down, I'd be like, cool, I'm gonna go play some video games. You know, I don't know. Fascinating. But Festus' response is, man, you're going crazy, Paul. Your, your, your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, always so kind and courteous. A message for all of us as we disagree. Let's be gentle and gracious. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. Man, I'm full-headed here. I'm clear-minded. For the king knows about these matters. He again turns back to who? Agrippa. And I can speak boldly to him. For I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. I mean, you're appointing the high priest, bro. You believe the prophets, right? Paul puts Agrippa on the spot. He knows Agrippa's in the know. Some of you guys like to know, be in the know, don't you? Like, you know, like know what's happening. Sometimes people come up with news articles they share to me. I'm like, what? <laughs> Who died? I don't know. But in this particular case, Agrippa should know about this. Why? This stuff hasn't been hidden, Paul. This hasn't been hidden, Agrippa. Paul says, Paul says when, when God comes into the world, people knew about it. We'd respect, we would expect no, no less. Agrippa responds to Paul. Festus says, you're crazy. Agrippa says, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Underlying, Agrippa says, you see what I have going on? You really think I'm going to be, look at you. You think I'm going to convince, be convinced so easily? And Paul's response, his heart for these lost men standing in front of him. I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am except for these chains. <clears throat> Paul said, you know, other than just being locked up, I wish you had exactly what I have. I, I don't want this on anybody. I don't wish you to be 
in prison for two years, not able to come and go as you wish, but the freedom that I have in Christ, I wish every one of you knew that. And their final response, the king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them all got up. They left, they talked with each other and said, this man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. See, Agrippa and Festus still only see Paul as a man in chains. And they don't even realize that they're the ones in bondage. My fear is that for many of us, we still remain in bondage to this world. That there are elements of other people's opinions, of the allure, the intoxicating allure of power and prestige, opportunity, advancement, that draws us and tempts us to take our hope from the one who has given his life for us and to rest that hope in what the world has to offer. See, there's a quote from the Bible you may have seen in any number of ways. The quote is, something in some form of the truth will set you free. Actually, the original headquarter building of the CIA on the side of it was carved, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The most secretive place in the entire country. <laughs> There's a website called truthsetsusfree.com whose motto is dedicated to liberating Americans through education. Advocating limited government and some conspiracy theories. President James Garfield once said, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. But if you're not familiar with that, the quote actually comes directly from Jesus himself in John chapter eight, verses 31 through 36, where he's talking to a group of Jews and he says this to the ones who believed him in him. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And their response to him was curious. They were confused. He said, we are descendants of Abraham. They answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Now, their head's still sitting on the outside. Nobody's enslaved us. I'm not in bondage to anything. And Jesus responds, truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. That's it. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So who is the one that sets you free? Verse 36, if the son sets you free, you really will be free. That's the freedom that Paul is pointing Agrippa and Festus and Bernice to. That's the freedom that Jesus sent Paul to the Gentiles for, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins, that they would be free from that. And, and, and not only just be free from that, to share among those who are sanctified by faith in me, to have a, a share in the blessings that come from him, from freedom. See, Jesus Christ came 
into the world to save the world from the power of Satan. And he did so by conquering Satan, sin, and death in his death on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. And that's what Paul's proclaiming. And like Paul told Agrippa, it wasn't done in a corner. He tells, he tells a group later, if there's 500 witnesses if you wanna go talk to them. We have evidence and when God enters the world to save the world, it's not a secret, it changes the world. I am continually fascinated by the complete trajectory of the world in which when Christ enters into it, changed everything. The impact he's had throughout history. I've appreciated listening to a couple scholars talk about that, including N.T. Wright, when he likened it somewhat to a depth charge that goes off and ripple effect throughout time. That these 12 disciples in a room with 100 disciples all together moved throughout Jerusalem and turned the world upside down. I mean, that's continually what Acts is accusing them of. And it's what Paul tells Agrippa, you know about these things. I'm convinced because it wasn't done in a corner. And Jesus Christ and his disciples have turned the world upside down, brothers and sisters, and we cannot ignore that. If it has no effect on your life, then what are we doing here? I often sometimes laugh a little bit because we don't coordinate everything. And then I was going to give a quote by C.S. Lewis, and I heard one earlier from, from Micah. Uh, but C.S. Lewis also said this, Christianity if false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now, brothers and sisters, what are we trusting in every day? Where is our hope? We actually have to get up day after day as we're encouraging the gospels to pick up our cross and follow after Christ, that, that he's our hope. And, and I'm not standing up here as one that says, you guys get better. <laughs> this is as much for me as you. That I don't place my hope in other things, that I'm not worried and consumed by what other people think about me in my day-to-day -day life, but I do and follow after Christ in a way that honors and glorifies him to the best of my ability and trust him with the out, out, fall, fallout. And if you're not someone who has placed your faith and trust in Christ, what are you waiting on? You no longer have to walk in darkness in bondage to this world. In fact, Christ tells his followers, come to me, who, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this world does nothing but pile on burdens. Let's, let's trust in the resurrection of Christ and the freedom that's resting in there. Let's not trust in the bondage of this world. Let's not place our hope there, but rather place our hope in Christ. Father, ask.